Welcome, and thanks for joining us for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we will be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and in their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed to provide community support to adult and child survivors, rather than relying on a putative response. We prioritize guidance that advances equity and removes barriers to the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by institutions and systems and towards supports that center survivors and their families and communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and our practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these shorts to engage in discussions in your organizations. I'm your host, Surabi Kukay. Let's dive in. Welcome to the first episode of The Pivot. We'll be kicking it off today with a conversation with colleagues from Futures Without Violence. I'm going to invite you all to introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are, where you're based, what you do. Why don't you get us started, Mie? Thank you. Um, Hi, everyone. My name is Mie Fukuda. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I live in Los Angeles, California. Um, I work at Futures Without Violence. I'm a program director with our children and youth team, and I've been with Futures for almost eight years now, so for a bit. And before I came to Futures, I was a preschool teacher and a children's advocate at a domestic violence shelter. Mia, I don't think I knew you were a preschool teacher. I love learning that about you. (laughs) Yeah, I love. Uh, that was actually one of my favorite jobs. The little kids are so cute and <laughs> they learn so fast. Well, hi everyone. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Surabi, to the podcast. Uh, my name is Jessica Moreno, and I use she/her pronouns. Uh, I am the managing partner and consultant at Collective Capacity Consulting, and I serve, uh, through that work, I serve as a member of the Promising Futures technical assistance team, and I also support on the cross-site evaluation team for this grant program. Uh, And I'm calling in from Texas, and uh, Texas is really where I I like to tell people that I grew up in the work because I was a young person in prevention programming here in Texas and have been uh, mentored and supported by many preventionists and, and advocates in my life here in Texas. And so I have a really deep appreciation for the work that Futures Without Violence does and Uh, And likely to many of you who are listening in, thank you for your work to promote healing and create safer communities. Thank you, Jessica and Mie. I'm really pleased to be able to talk with you today. So you both mentioned uh, promising futures. And I am glad you both mentioned it in your in your opening, because I really wanted us to talk about it a little bit to introduce folks to this project um, for those who don't are not familiar with it and, and learn a little bit about it. So I want to invite you, maybe Mie, to start. Um, tell us a little bit about Promising Futures um, and the goals of the initiative. Yeah. 
So Promising Futures is a national initiative um, and it's been, gosh, I feel like it's been um, in the works since before I started at Futures. So it kind of precedes my time uh, with Futures. But it's really an initiative that uh, centers uh, a technical assistance and training for organizations and programs who are thinking about uh, strengthening their domestic violence prevention and response, um, particularly uh, focusing on children, uh, young people like teenagers, uh, youth, and their caregivers and family members. So we really want to empower programs to think about creating children's kind of programming and young people, um, like bringing in young people and children into their programs and thinking specifically about their needs, uh, what helps their resilience, resilience building and healing and combining that uh, mm-hmm. with their adult caregivers as well. So uh, we, it's kind of a two-faced initiative. One side is a national uh, capacity building center where any kind of program or even an individual who's interested in learning more about DV response and prevention can reach out to us. Uh, We have a website and a new one is actually going to be launched soon as well with tools, resources, information. Um, And we provide training and technical assistance um, on that side as well. And then the other side of the initiative is a grantee program. So there are currently uh, 26 organizations across the country who received funding from FIPSA, who's a federal funder um, and a federal program. And they are being funded to create innovations, basically, in working with children and adult survivors of domestic violence. And we provide t- technical assistance and training to uh, to them. We work really closely with them. And essentially, we also want to bridge what we're learning from their work to what we're pushing out from, on the National Capacity Building Center uh, mm. so that we can share those lessons learned to the field. And so you said there, a website is going to be launched soon where people can get more mm-hmm. information about this technical assistance as well. Wonderful. Okay. So... One of the things that I've really appreciated about Promising Futures, the, the program, as I've gotten to know it, um, ha- is sort of the, the way that you began this process of developing what you call guiding principles and that sort of framing of values-driven work, that setting a stage of um, coming to agreement on collective principles kind of enables a particular values-driven effort to unfold. And I I am interested in this conversation for today because I think a lot of people will benefit from it. And I think it's at the heart of what we mean when we say making a pivot away from systems that harm families, particularly Black and Brown families, and pivot away from those systems and look towards systems or redesigning systems that have young people at the center that have people with the most lived expertise at the center that have, you know, that really live the values that we have. So what I want to hear about today, I don't know, maybe Jessica, you're going to, you can start us off. Tell us about these guiding principles. Maybe what are they to begin with? And, um, and then I'd love to hear more about how you develop them and why you develop them, et cetera. But yeah, let's get started with just hearing about these guiding principles. 
Thanks, Sudabi. Um, yeah, I would love to start us off just by taking a moment to talk a little bit about what the principles are by name. They are There are seven guiding principles. And so we're just going to read them out uh, because we think it's so important to first center the principles in this conversation. So the first guiding principle is the principle of partnership or establishing transformational partnerships that shift power to communities. And Mia, do you want to take the next one? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, the second one is accountability, which is establishing practices that hold people who use violence responsible, repair harm caused by people and systems, and change the conditions that perpetuate violence. The third principle is healing. So to create a wide array of pathways to healing for all people impacted by violence, powered by individual, family, and community relationships. So we're not just focusing on the individual when we talk about healing. We're talking really about our collective healing as well. The next is storytelling, uh, capturing stories and spreading their impact using a wide range of interpersonal, cultural, and research and evaluation approaches. And then the next would be equity. So implementing approaches that are responsive to the connection between family violence and other forms of oppression that impact people's lives because we know that they're not experiencing family violence in silence. Environmental safety. And the last one would be centering lived expertise. Uh, and that is to really facilitate people's ability to define their own experiences and direct the trajectory of their lives. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about these, but there's an even deeper guide available to folks if you want to learn more, not just about the term themselves, but to really learn more about some of the deeper meaning behind these terms in uh, with regard to how we use them in our work to uh, respond to, to families who are experiencing violence. Um, and so you'll be able to find that deeper guide on the Promising Futures website. Thank you. So how did, I mean, this, this is a beautiful like list and the descriptions as well, but how did you get to distilling these seven principles? I'm thinking about programs, coalitions around the country that um, are like, okay, this makes sense, but how do we, how did you do this? You know, it sounds like a very long process. Mm -hmm. I'm and assuming. It, I don't it know. actually was. It took years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as I said in my intro or like the talking about Promising Futures, the initiative, this also kind of it was started before I even started on the project. So that's how long it's taken. But we knew from the get go that when we started Promising Futures, we wanted to be values and principles aligned in everything in our work and everything that we did. So we started conversations very early on with different folks in the field in different types of roles and really trying to understand from everyone's different experiences doing domestic violence response and prevention work and working with survivors, both adult and child survivors of domestic violence, what it takes to create holistic, meaningful, positively impactful programming that are indeed, you know, values uh, driven 
And I think that we had a, a national leadership committee um, that, you know, you can actually learn more about on the link that's going to be provided. It's in the document itself to learn about who was a part of that committee. But they really represented um, different disciplines, different roles, um, and have been in anti-violence work for a while. And they were the ones who, with uh, our team, really helped kind of create and finesse the the principles that we have. And we have our author, Ruby Whitestar, who really did such a great job of taking all of those conversations uh, over the years and kind of condensing them and representing everything that folks shared into this document that you see today. And we think of this as a living document. So uh, we're continuing to learn more about what works, you know, for whom, under what conditions, and how useful and meaningful these principles can be or are. And we're so we're continuing to make them better. So it, it was a process like you, it was like a series of meetings where people mm-hmm. kind of like hashed out ideas or or was it all I guess it was in person back before everything was virtual yeah they were uh actually they were a hybrid of um in-person and uh, virtual meetings because you know even before the pandemic we had folks all across the like the country so in order to be with them we were using zoom way before the pandemic so it was a mixture, but they were definitely conversations. There were also a lot of different iterations and drafts of the principles that got shared out. We also involved um, the grantees from the first cohort of Promising Futures to weigh in and, and let us know, um, you know, kind of help us give, give us feedback. So yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of talking, a lot of idea <laughs> sharing and writing, I guess. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jessica? Any thoughts on why or how this emerged? Yeah, I think when when Mie and I first were invited to do this, uh, I I asked why me. I was not an original creator, um, and. I think that's so uh, so relevant to this field at large, right? I wasn't the creator of domestic violence response, and right, we get to lean on our collective histories and all of the folks that have been doing this work uh, before us, and the folks that will continue to do this work after us to to continue to take it and make sense out of it to your own lived experiences and continue to elevate it forward. And so I undid that question in my mind of why me and thought this is for all of us. And so I really appreciate all the the love and work that went into this. I know there were also things like, you know, discussion papers on, on guiding principles or principles-based work. And so a lot of love and a lot of work went into the creation. And when I joined the the, the Promising Futures Technical Assistance Team. And really, I'm also part of the cross-site evaluation to make meaning out of this process and say, you know, are these principles doing anything for us? What, you know, we like to call this question the so what, um, you know, so we were thinking about that. But m- when I joined the team, I really got to understand that the guiding principles are really designed to help inform our thinking and our decision making to improve services. 
but they're not really here to tell you exactly what to do, which I think is a good thing. Oftentimes we want a toolkit or a resource mm. or the answer handed to us, especially because we've got so many things going on. Many of us are operating in organizations that are literally responding to crisis every day. Mm-hmm. And, and so while that might be helpful in some ways, it's not always helpful in others. And so the guiding principles really provide a clear guide, a clear guideposts that allow for different but not conflicting interpretations so that everyone can really take these principles, think about the decisions that they're making about their programming, and really apply it in uh, the context of their community, their resource, and whatever community and survivor needs that are present for them. And so Mm -hmm. if I take the principle of partnership, it might look a little bit different than than Mie's uh, interpretation of partnership. But those guideposts are really there to help us think about not just the term partnership, but what does it mean to make decisions that shift power to communities and survivors? When we do that, we know we're moving in the right direction to improve services for folks. And so it really is taking us beyond just thinking about who's supposed to be our partner and I'm supposed to check that box, right? This person and this person are supposed to be my partners. And rather it moves us into thinking about partnership in a deeper and more meaningful way with our North Star of the folks that we're hoping to support in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you'll notice that too in how the principles, once you start getting into them and reflecting on them, they're really interconnected and they Mm -hmm. lean on each other in a lot of ways. So, so yeah. I get excited about the principles. That's, that was <laughs> awesome. That was such a great answer. It actually leads to a question I have about, can you give us like more illustration? That was such a great example of how to re, like reorient ourselves around partnership. Like what, what are we really reaching for? Um, that's power sharing. Can you give us more illustration, more examples, either from your work in your role or things you've seen transpire with the grantees as they've begun to embrace these principles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mie, I'm thinking about our preparation for this podcast. <laughs> um, so right. when when be when you gave us like the list of questions, of course, Mie and I were like, all right, let's type out answers. Let's get to the let's get to the bottom of all of these questions. And we had to push back against our own sense of urgency and productivity and, and getting it right. All of which we know are rooted in habits of white supremacy and habits of capitalism. So, you know, we started scripting it out verbatim. And once we we took a step back, we were able to really slow ourselves down and think about it and decided you know, again, that question arose, why me? Why is Jessica or why is Mie the person that should be talking about the guiding principles? And so when we took that step back, we really leaned into the principle of centering our lived expertise Mm -hmm. and saying, you know what? We need to scrap that stuff. That's that was just like our scripted version, um, and and this this is how we really want to tell this story. And so taking that step back, taking you know really making that pivot. No, we didn't know uh, <laughs> that this was the pivot podcast, but yes, uh, making the pivot that we really are trying to center our expertise and think about the most meaningful way to share this story. That's the power of the principles in action in my mm-hmm. mind, and so it. Helps us 
really unlearn and re-remember how to stay connected to our own humanity as TA providers, as advocates, right? And as well as the share humanity of the communities that we're which working principles within and, provided and guidance that we're in their decision-making and actions related to their work. And if they hadn't used the principles, they share situations in which one or more principles could have influenced their choices differently in, in hindsight. And that has the potential to transform so much of programmatic work, like to, yeah, centered their lived experience. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I can imagine as you were working, or I know you both weren't involved in like designing these these principles, but as they were developed, emerged, and have been applied, you have a sense of like what you hope the this change that it results in, like how it will affect programmatic policy and practice, or if not that concrete, like how it affects behavior or attitudes or something. I'm just curious, does this land, does this have a theory of change of its own? Yeah, I think this also connects to, you know, this is a demonstration project too. So so the funder that is funding um, each of the grantee sites, as well as the technical assistance project itself, you know, really wanted to see what, what can we learn from all of this as Mie was talking about. And so, you know, even though the principles have been rooted in years and years of, of you know, field experience from folks across the country. From from an evaluation perspective, we really had to think about um, how can we evaluate these principles and any impact they have on our collective work. And so we embarked on a principles-focused evaluation. So we're still in the midst of that. We're in um, the second year of that evaluation. And for us, the first question that we wanted to figure out was, okay, we get really jazzed about these principles and the creators got really jazzed about these principles, but are they even meaningful to programs who didn't necessarily have a part in, in creating them? And so that was, that's been our first question to see, you know, are they meaningful enough? Do they resonate with folks? Are they useful? Do they inspire folks? And if so, our second part of the question is, do they have impact on outcomes? So when mm-hmm. someone takes a pause and they pivot from the way they might have usually done business and just, you know, this is the way we've done it. This is the way it's always been done. So this is the way we're going to continue to do it. But when they take a step back and say, I'm going to continue the partnership principle example and say, you know, what um, this decision of engaging with this new community partner, for example, how is that shifting power, right? And by shifting power, then does that mean that the outcomes for children and families in our programs gets better, stays the same? Our hope at this point is that it absolutely will will shift those outcomes. And, and while it's a hypothesis at this point, I think the reflective practice helps us identify the needed pivots without shame, without blame, without guilt. Um, so rather than saying, oh, this this policy is deeply racist in our organization, uh, we can reflect instead on how is this policy rooted in equity that's responsive to the connection between different forms of oppression that impact survivors' lives. Mm. And when we pivot in that way, we're able to, to think about this from a more solution-focused yeah. thought process in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be wrapping us up with one more question. It's a question we ask all of our guests. What are two things 
just two things that um, you that our listeners could consider applying in in trying to apply these principles or in building their own principles in their work? Like what? Yeah, two baby steps. <laughs> yeah, I can start us off. Um, well, the first thing that we want folks to kind of bring bring with them when they read the principles and consider uh, consider them for their personal use or for their agency use is to think about how the principles can be applied to anyone, regardless of what role you play, uh, what your work is like, what your program you know focuses on. It's really meant to resonate and really, uh, yeah, be applied to anyone and everyone who's in this work. So, you know, I, I know a lot of organizations work on a, kind of are structured in a hierarchical, in a hierarchical way. Um, so regardless of whether you're, you know, like at the administrator level or the folks who are thinking about policies, you know, protocols, um, things like that, um, to folks who are doing on the ground work, uh, working directly with families, both children and adult survivors, um, and working with other organizations in their in their communities, that all of these principles can be applied to your work. So, uh, to really think of it in that expansive way, um, because the principles are really meant for us to be very, to examine, right? Um, Like we've been saying, what, how we've been doing things, what we want to keep and what we want to change based on what the principles are kind of encouraging us to think about um, so that we can be principles focused. That could be applied to at all levels of, of an organization's work. So that would be the first thing. Okay. Jessica, you want to hit us with number two? Yeah, I think it's be nimble. The principles have gone through multiple iterations Mm -hmm. and they may go through a few additional iterations and that's okay. Change is continual and our thinking gets to be continual too. What I know today is different than what I knew yesterday and that means we're growing and that's okay. I know we've mentioned this before, but the principles were not meant to be rigid and operationalized. Instead, they are there for us to to flexibly play around with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this could look like a, a partnership example could be, you know, an organization might give money to a, a smaller grassroots org mm-hmm. uh, that may not have cap- capacity or infrastructure, but it could also look like a counselor or an advocate centering clients' choices in, and, you know, really making sure that they're offering the kinds of services that, that survivors want to participate in, even if it's not at your organization. So that, that nimble piece, that flexibility, I think is the other piece that we get to play around with. We don't have to be so prescriptive. Mm, that is good guidance in all arenas of life to be <laughs> to take this on and be nimble. Uh, thank you so much, both of you, Mie and Jessica, for um, sharing your experience with these guiding principles and your wisdom and what you've learned about its application. Um, I know our listeners will benefit from digging into them and learning about how it works in their environments. So I encourage you all to check it out. Uh, You'll find the links in the show notes. Um, And uh, 
stay connected, stay connected to Promising Futures to learn what they're doing and, um, and tell us about how your applications of, of the guiding principles might have gone. You can, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you think there is work going on in your community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That's thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Email us with information about your effort and we'll be sure to reach out to you. Special thanks to Chance Taylor for his support in editing these shorts. Thanks again for joining us.